1: To get started,
0: visit plushcare.com slash weightloss. That's plushcare.com slash loss.
1: Hi, everyone, and welcome to Confessions of a Debut Novelist with me, your host, Chloe Timms. This week, I'm talking to Rajah Varia Varya about her contemporary novel, The Daughters of Madurai. Rajasri was born in Bangalore and raised in Sydney. She is an award-winning short story writer, marathon runner and self-described history nerd and she now lives in London. In this episode we discuss how she was inspired by a shocking news story about infanticide which she remembered from her childhood, why her intense research trip to India made her complex characters more authentic and finding a way to give agency to historically and culturally oppressed female characters. But first, here's rajashree with an excerpt from The Daughters of Madurai. Madurai,
2: India, 1992. Almost two months before her conception. She does not exist, even in thought. Janani knew the minute the midwife placed her naked, squalling, softer silk daughter in her arms that she couldn't lose this one. An image came to her mind, burying a bundle gone cold and still in the dirt by the young coconut palm. Her hands drew the hated little body closer. Tiny limbs moved in fitful pumps as Janani looked down into a face as round and purple as a mangosteen. The baby's mouth shifted over the swollen skin of her breast, and her plaintive wail died as she found the nipple and began to feed. Her minute fingers rested against the skin over Janani's heart. Janani watched her in the light of the oil lamp, her eyes trailing along each line of her body, trying to find something that made her less than perfect. Rock, my little peacock. The lullaby escaped through her lips, the first words she'd managed since that last pain-riddled push. Hands were fussing around her, tender and papery. Kamala, the old, strong midwife who had delivered most of the rest of Usilampati district, over what seemed like centuries... Janani barely noticed until someone spoke. "'Give her to me.' Pain and weariness turned what should have been a familiar voice into a half-recognised echo. "'No,' Janani tried to say. It stayed a tired whisper in her mind. She wanted to hold this new life for as long as she could. There was a rough fumble, nails scratching against her forearms, and the warmth of newborn, new-drawn skin was gone. Her daughter began to cry again, The noise stuttered into existence like a steam engine's chugs.
1: The door closed, muffling the sound. Hi, Rajasri. welcome to the podcast. I'm really excited to have you on with me today to discuss your debut novel, Daughters of Mandurai.
2: Chloe, it's such a joy to join you today. Thank you for inviting me on.
1: Oh, it's so lovely to have you. Um, you, Before we started recording, you just said some lovely things about the podcast, so it is a, a real pleasure to have you on with me today. Can you start by introducing your novel Daughters of Madurai for us and tell us what it's all about?
2: Yes, of course. So Daughters of Madurai is a uh, dual timeline novel um, that tracks the relationship between a mother and a daughter. Uh, Janani um, is a young woman um, in sort of early 90s uh, South India. Um, she is the mother of a, a daughter and she's pregnant again and, and she will do whatever it takes to save um, save the life of her unborn child. Um, and then 25 years later, we we follow the story of Neela, who grew up in Australia and knows very little about her mother's uh, background. Um, Neela goes back to to India um, to visit her alien grandfather. And, and as part of that journey, she uncovers more about her mother's uh, past, um, which has been secret to her for, for so long, and also builds up the courage to reveal a secret of her own. So, mm. Very much about mother and daughter relationships and, and family mysteries
1: yeah and i i guess a little bit about um identity and kind of knowing knowing who you are and and as well as kind of exploring this kind of darker well, tragedy i guess that was happening uh, at the time your I, I found the the kind of genesis of this novel fascinating because i i read that this this novel began life way way back uh when you watched a news program that kind of stuck with you from childhood. Can you tell us about that and and kind of how do you been thinking of this idea for, for many many years? How did it all begin? Yeah
2: um, great question. I, it's it's really funny because I've um, always wanted to be a writer and you know I've read um, as many writers do uh, most of my life and read a lot of fantasy and so when I started writing it was actually um, fantasy that I was dabbling in for a novel but when I thought about a story that would really sort of resonate with me to write, um, it came back to this moment uh, when I was about nine or ten years old, and I was watching a news um, segment with my parents. And essentially, it was a, a case of female infanticide in Bangalore, which is where I was born in Bangalore, South India. And at that age, I remember my mum saying something like, um, "Bangalore, that you know that that's where you were born." Um, And what the the thought that really struck me was that could have been me, that little girl. Um, I I was a little girl born in Bangalore and, you know, this little girl born, you know, a few streets away from where where I once lived had been murdered because she was girl. And that really struck me. I think from, from that age on, I was always passionate about sort of women's and children's rights. And um, when I thought about a novel, I was like, I really wanted to explore this complex emotion I had around, Female infanticide. What it was about. What caused it. I mean, it just seems like such an unthinkable action to to kill your own child, um, and and simply because of their their sex is just you know, it just blew my mind. So I think for me to write this novel, it was it was almost a bit of a, um, a scratching a selfish need to understand understand more about it and delve into the research, and um, yeah, that that's what I had a chance to do.
1: Mm. Yeah, it's funny, isn't it, how sometimes there are these topics that are really emotive somehow to you that then stay with you for years and years. And and like you said, you kind of kept coming back to it. And and although you were interested in or read a lot of fantasy, it was somehow not quite connecting until you found this topic. How do you then, I'm, I'm intrigued to, to know whether you've kind of half written a novel or tried writing novels before this?
2: Yes. Yeah. Yeah. No, I do have a first draft of an epic fantasy novel <laughs> somewhere on this laptop. Somewhere. <laughs> um, yeah. I mean, at some point, you know, I'd love, I'd love to explore fantasy because I do think it's a fascinating genre, but I think I've always, um, I've written a lot of short stories in the past as well. And I've always used writing as a way to sort of express my emotions around ser- certain social issues. I feel like I can't, sometimes you feel help, helpless about around, you know, certain things that you're really passionate about. Writing, I think, is a way for you to, like, process that emotion. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I think it, I loved writing The Daughter's of Mother. I loved exploring um, this very um, emotive social issue that was so close to me. Um, I've done it before. So, you know, it's it's a, a genre I think I'd like to keep writing as, in as well.
1: Mm, absolutely. I wondered whether, because obviously the 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 kind of initial spark of the idea came from um you know that this very dark topic. And I wondered whether you'd because this novel is a dual timeline. I wondered whether you had always envisioned it that way or whether you'd once kind of just focused on the kind of historical side um and not had a kind of present day strand.
2: Uh, Yeah, a great question. And, yes, initially I had just looked at following Janani's storyline. And actually I think it's quite interesting when you're writing about um, sort of current issues um, that there is sometimes this urge to almost save the world when you're writing it. You're almost trying to, through your writing, almost find out how you can solve the issue. And, you know, in a way, like I think, writing does allow you to sort of explore that a little bit, but ultimately, like, I think it's not the issue that I'm writing about, it's about the relationships and the people and, you know, the issue doesn't exist in sort of a vacuum. And I think, so for me, initially when I was writing about it, I was sort of, you know, trying to almost save Johnny from the situation, but actually... The characters sort of came in, and their relationships came in, and, and through that, I, I was able to sort of tie in the storyline of actually what happens to her after. And um, I think the other thing I really wanted to explore was this: a lot of us who live in a, like a diasporic community, there's it, it's a very strange sort of um, dichotomy of identity that we've got. You know, I'm, I'm Australian, for example, but I very much relate to being Indian because. I was born there, I spent a lot of time there and they're two completely different worlds and I think for me being able to explore both Dhani and Neela's stories and their relationship with each other I was sort of able to to look at how you can sort of reconcile those two completely different worlds Mm. um, and those two different identities.
1: Yeah, and I think as well with what you were saying about kind of wanting to go in and, and save the situation I think when you're dealing with a topic that is A, real and B, incredibly tragic you don't want to necessarily go in and make things unreal by giving everyone like a really neat happy ending or making things you know have you know easy solutions but the way I'm not going to give any spoilers but the way (laughs) uh, you deal with the topic leaves room for a feeling of kind of hope and also a feeling of Um, you know, that things have managed to resolve themselves without it shying away from the bitter realities of life, I guess. That's the vaguest way I can put it. (laughs) Um, But I feel like, yeah, I think having the second timeline allows you to do that because it adds a little bit of distance. Um, And I think if you perhaps had not had the second timeline, it might have been maybe a more unrelentingly dark topic or or story I don't know how you feel about that
2: yeah no you know what yes you're, you're spot on um that that's exactly what I wanted to do was yes it's it is a very grim topic but I I'm an idealist and I like a happy ending and and I, I definitely wanted to to find the hope in the situation, I think there is hope in the situation, um, and I, I did want to sort of make sure that that came through at the end. Um, and then the distance is, yeah, again, it, it is so important to have that there. To that sort of, it, it's not all about the grimness of the issue. And I think when I went to India, and I think we'll talk about this in a little bit later. When and when I went to India and spoke to um, the communities there, um, amongst whom you know this practice still still exists today. Um, What I found was that that hope is there, you know, these people are lovely people, warm people who are living lives in which they they have fun and they laugh and they love. Um, And I wanted to make sure that that came through, that, you know, all that existed alongside this, you know, this very tragic practice.
1: Mm. Okay. so let's go back to that topic then, because I know you spent a lot of time uh, working for a charity there and that must have massively helped writing this novel so tell us how that fed into uh, your writing.
2: Yeah absolutely so I wanted to learn more about the issue and I uh, sought out a, a charity in, in um, South India um, and I found that there are a few villages in the district of Madurai that where this this practice became endemic um, sort of we, we don't really know how long it, it has existed for because you know Families just don't talk about it, really. But definitely, sort of throughout the 20th century, and it was uncovered, sort of in the ni- late 1980s. Um, there were essentially like five or six different sort of um, villages where, where this was taking place, and one of one of the um, villages is quite close, actually, to where some of my family, my family from Kerala, but uh, um, some of them actually moved to to Motherai um, three or four decades ago. Um, and and they they live very close to that area. So actually, when I when I went there, I, I identified this grassroots organization um run by two sort of local people who look to sort of empower women and girls and look to fight the causes of the, the endemic causes of female infanticide, which is cultural, it's economic, it's social. So trying to sort of take a, a three-pronged approach to sort of stamping it out essentially so I was able to stay with, stay with my family visit my family and, and spend some time with this organization shadowing them and understanding sort of how they go about um, what they do in, in tackling the issue but also really I was really fortunate to they took me to meet families where um, who, who had been practicing female infanticide and um, I was able to speak to them and get their views on the practice and I think I mean that was just so so helpful I think for me I went there and they were so similar I mean their lives were very different because these more rural people so a lot of their um, uh, family were involved in agriculture and other sort of more subsist- subsistence living but you know it's like culture and the and the religion and um, it was all similar to you know what I'd experienced with my family so I, I definitely found sort of a, a an element of relatability there, but also I was able to sort of really understand why the practice was occurring and why it was so difficult to break. Um, I was able to understand sort of, you know, the systemic sort of degradation of women and in, in like their status in society meant that you had this like vicious circle of mother-in-laws treating daughter-in-laws dreadfully and uh, a lack of value on women and the fact that you know until sort of recently the last 20-30 years women couldn't open a bank account in their own name they were completely dependent on their husbands they obviously the family name passed down from um, father to son so women just didn't exist in the historical record. It's like they weren't there. Um, and then obviously because of this, there was this, you know, fundamental value on having a son. Um, sons also were the ones to perform the funeral rites. So if you didn't have a son, it was essentially as though you couldn't reach enlightenment, you couldn't reach moksha because you didn't have a son to perform your funeral rites. So all of this was just, just built in culturally and trying to tackle all of that um, was yeah, it's really difficult, you know, um, mm. quite difficult to sort of, you know, deal with from within. So I was really able to understand that when I was there and I was able to write about it, I think, a lot more sympathetically and hopefully a lot more realistically, authentically than I would have done if I had not visited and spoke to these these families.
1: Mm, absolutely. That was one of the questions I had for you as well because I think if you're just given or that topic to to kind of think about you automatically take a stance of this is horrendous you know it's tragic it's awful which it is but i think what your novel explores like you say is the reasons why and and one of your characters is janani's mother-in-law who mm-hmm. i guess is as is, is, is we'd see her if you want to be black and white about things as the kind of uh, more of the villain of the piece but for you as the writer you have to empathize with her, otherwise you don't write her authentically. So, I mean, I'm sure there's a lot of readers that would, you know, completely take against her. But do you did you have to kind of spend time wrestling with her motivations and who she was to kind of make her as real as possible?
2: Uh, yeah, absolutely, and it took time because I think initially, I, I mean. You, you're right. It is difficult to think of that situation as not black and white. I mean, it just seems awful to um, to, to practice female infanticide. So initially, it was it, it was quite easy to write her as a villain, particularly because I'm writing from Janani's point of view, and then for her, um, you know, Vamana is is the villain. But I'm also, you know, the narrator and the author. I, I, I need to sort of make sure that she comes across as sympathetic in a way and I think again that sort of idea of generational trauma and you know the abuse becoming the abuser is it it exists in many other contexts not just in this one and I think um tapping into that a little bit made it a lot easier for me to think about sort of how did I get to where she is and think about the fact that but for a twist in circumstance that could be done any Replicating the same behavior onto her own, in like you know mm. children-in-law, daughters-in-law, so um, that that did make it easier. And you know, I, I met women um, when I was there who had practiced female infanticide, who had had it inflicted upon them, who had had fem- like female members of their own family were actively coming after their babies <laughs> um, to take them away and, and kill them, and you know trying to understand why this was happening. I think um really helped me sort of shape Momina's character.
1: Mm, absolutely. I want because I haven't asked you yet about your two leading ladies, I just want to touch back on them for a second. Um obviously we've talked a little bit little bit about Jananeen. Um and she I wondered what it was like to kind of write a character who is very oppressed within her society and within her family even but you don't want to make her this kind of passive character. You want to make her active and you want to kind of give her strength and agency and bravery. How hard is that to do when everyone around her is quite controlling?
2: It was really hard to do. (laughs) It was really hard to do. And I needed to try and ensure that, as you said, things did not just happen to her because... That is often the case. Um, it, it can be very difficult when you're in this circumstance to to find ways to um, assert your agency. Um, so I had to really, you know, ensure that the cast of characters around her were what uh, enabled her to allow her to express some level of freedom. Um, I think again, uh, thinking about it, getting to the detail, getting through like specific plot points. Um, and again relating it back to sort of my experience there and and my experience throughout sort of um my upbringing and spending time in india and understanding how women in particular are able to express agency i think there is very strong relationships that not everybody is controlling there are these relationships of strength and friendship and love and i think um, characters like Kamala, the midwife, who acts almost like, like a surrogate mother and an advisor, and um, Shuba, who is, is, you know, that best friend, the sister, providing that strength. And then obviously um, Sanjay and his family. There are pockets there where she's able to practice her resilience, <laughs> for want of a better term, and and then find, you know, the light and then find a way out of her situation. The other thing is, I mean, Luck is involved, right? You need, having the right people in your life and having them able to provide you with opportunity that you wouldn't necessarily, someone else wouldn't necessarily have. I think is is part and parcel of life. So you know that definitely does exist. But yeah, it was important for me to sort of bring together uh, you know Janine's characteristics as well as the right sort of cast of characters around her and opportunity to be able to sort of allow her that agency.
1: Mm -hmm. And what about Nila then? How did you create her character?
2: Yeah, I mean I think <laughs> a lot of Neela is is definitely drawn from my background. I'm a runner. Um <laughs> I grew up in western Sydney so there, there's a bit of that. Um a lot of my uh friends from Australia will also point out the fact that there is a scene in Cargo Bar which is um a notorious uh nightlife uh place in Sydney Harbour. So there are a, a bit of it definitely drawn from my own background but then again like I think the just natural extrapolation of Janani moving with this young child to Australia and how she finds her feet and finds her identity in what is a very multicultural City Sydney's very multicultural and um just how how you would then move from that to sort of questioning your background. I think a lot a lot of people when you are going through childhood, you don't it just happens to you. You know, you, you don't necessarily sort of question where you came from, or new parents' behavior and and why they act the way they do, and then there's that point in life, particularly when you're starting to make significant life choices, where you wonder why your parents have acted the way they do. And I think getting to that point in her life where she's actually like really questioning um, her her background it was quite interesting to explore um, and sort of unpacking her relationship then with her mother.
1: Mm. You talked a little bit about Sydney then, and I mean, both both aspects of your, um, one aspect of your writing, which I thought was beautiful, is was the way you write setting and location. And you balance it so well, because it's not like you have, you know, reams of description about a place, but it it feels very active and very real, moving around your characters. So how did you achieve that to kind of make it fit around the story rather than the story fitting around the the setting descriptions?
2: Um, Thank you. That's really lovely to hear. I I think just to touch on that point, like, I think, you know, I've got some lovely feedback from readers and for me always it's particularly people from an Indian background or who live in India, South India and say it comes across as so authentic. I'm like, that's, that's amazing. So I didn't, I didn't live in India. So for me, it was very important that it came across as authentic. So thank you. to be honest, I think there's one of my lecturers probably at UEA who mentioned, like, when you are writing a character story, you should draw the setting as they would see it. So I think, you know, really getting into the minds of the characters and the experiences that they're going through you know, certain scenes and identifying what about those, what the specifics about a, a scene that are important to them or relevant to them and making sure I'm bringing those out in, in detail I think was a really good way for me, helpful, way for me to think about it so I tried to do that as much as possible and make sure that you know it was at relevant points during a character's journey through a particular scene that I was able to sort of bring out the setting Um, Mm. I'm glad it came across well though
1: (laughs) (laughs) I'd love to go back in time and touch on your writing journey from your beginning to now and I know you mentioned UEA and I know you did a creative writing uh, was it a master's you did there yes yeah. yeah so at what point in your life then did you decide to kind of I guess we use often use the phrase that we like take writing seriously but how did it become how does it go from being a hobby to something you really actively pursued
2: yeah so I sort of fell in love with writing um when I was in high school like I think a lot of writers probably did and um but then obviously, um, I have South Asian parents, and um <laughs> I'm the eldest child as well. so it was very much about a serious career first, serious career in quotation marks first. Um, so I, I went to university and studied finance and all of the practical things and and got a job in insurance. But I always wanted to be a, from from my teenagers wanted to be a writer. So um during sort of my, First years of work, I was um, doing of courses with the Australian Writers' Centre. I was, I was based in Sydney at the time. Um, and then when I moved over to London um, about eight years ago now, I... It was very much sort of the young Australian jump on the youth visa, come over to work and travel and live the London lifestyle. And the move meant that I wasn't doing very much writing. It already started, actually. I just started writing the very first draft of what would become the Daughters of Mother at the time. And um, I just didn't do any writing for about a year and a half, two years. And and at that point I was like, well, I could either, you know, do a bit of additional study in like another career path and, and go down like sort of the corporate world, or I could see if I could get into UEA and and do a, a writing master's. And I heard a couple of authors, Natasha Pulley in particular, talk about um, UEA master's and, and she loved it. And I love, I love her writing. That's what made me look into the course to begin with. And I was like, I'll apply. Um, and actually, if if I do get in, it almost gives me licence to focus on my writing, you know. I think otherwise... And a lot of writers will, will say the same thing. I'm sure Chloe, you felt the same thing. When you start out, you feel like you're writing in a void and nobody cares, you know, who cares that you're writing? It feels like there's nobody holding you to account. Um, and for me, doing the masters was very much sort of the required, you know, accountability and the discipline needed to actually take my writing seriously. Um, so that's what I did and I really enjoyed it. I did it part-time alongside working full-time and it was absolutely insane <laughs> It was it was uh, you know it was tough but I really enjoyed it and um you know that's sort of where the the you know the I guess the novel um in its close to its current form was completed
1: oh wow I was going to say then you do sound mad doing the course part-time and working full-time at the same time <laughs> uh, and I know you've got a lot on your plate at the moment anyway so for you, I mean, I guess at the moment your kind of writing life was changed a little bit, but for you, um what would be kind of like a ideal writing day? What would it look like?
2: That's a really good question. So <laughs> I think for, for me, it's an interesting one. I do find having work alongside my writing means that I um I I don't procrastinate as much when it comes to writing because I just don't have the time to procrastinate. Um, and so I, I definitely do feel like that balance works for me. So normally if I'm, if, when I'm working, I'll try and get up, um, early and do a couple of hours before I start work. So If I'm up at like five ish to get some writing done, um, and then do a day of work. It's funny. Once I've done my writing hours, I feel like I've, I've done what I needed for the day. <laughs> work is just sort of, you know, ancillary to that. Um, But then I I write write a lot on the weekends as well. And and for me, it's very much getting some exercise out early in the day. I I feel like that, you know, gets my creative juices flowing. And then um, I'll sort of do two hours and have a break and then another couple of hours. Um, That was before I had my baby and things have now changed. But, yeah, for me, that's ideal, like a couple of hours. And then um, in the evenings, I like to do a bit of research. And that's just fun, Um, you know, either reading other other novels or um actively researching um the current or a future future story idea
1: Mm. so you mentioned that you kind of completed your novel on the master's course were you at that point then looking for an agent how did your kind of journey to getting an agent pan out
2: yeah um it was really interesting for me, and I feel very, very fortunate. Um, during the Masters, I actually didn't work on the book too much. I used the Masters as a way to explore other writing styles, other genres, work on you know, different pieces. And then UEA um, uh, allows us to um, essentially publish an anthology um, of about 10,000 10, words, might be slightly less than that, actually, Um across the sort of the cohort and that then goes out to um, a handful of agents who work with UEA um, and and from that actually I was contacted by by an agent who was interested in reading more. So I sent her the first 10,000 words and, and then she wanted to read the whole novel and I was like, well, I better write it then. <laughs> so I I really knuckled down and I was like, actually someone's expecting this. So that gave me a great sort of deadline. I got the first draft draft. Um, well redrafted it actually over over about two months, sent it out and uh, to her. And then actually I was like, well, if I'm sending it out to to her, I may send it out to another handful of agents to just see what the feedback is like. So um so I sent it out to a further five agents. And from that round, I had um four requests for falls and then then three offers of representation. Um wow which was mad it was at, I was not expecting it at all and I was like I don't even know what to do with this like you as a, as a writer I think you're like if an agent offers me representation I'll be like hell yes like <laughs> I don't care who it is um but being able to sort of obviously look at agents that I would have loved to work with and then send it out and, and get three people coming back and saying I'd love to represent you I was over the moon and one of those agents was um all wonderful agents but one of those agents was juliet Mushins, who is was who my agent and she was my dream agent i um she represents amazing authors she is an absolute superwoman like i don't know how she works the way she works but she does and um i was, I was so over the moon so i had a call with her um and you know she was she was lovely this was during covid times so um over zoom and um offered i accepted her offer of representation and it was just—it was crazy because I—I went—I I went out on submission in September, and then by November I'd signed with Juliet, and I just—I still don't know how it happened, <laughs> but I feel very, very fortunate.
1: No, absolutely, um, Alan. Absolutely, your your writing is is beautiful, and I'm sure that really captured her attention. Also, because like I mentioned to you before we started recording, it's a really unique story, and I think that's what people are looking for really. I think it's stories that we haven't heard before. Um I wanted to ask you a question. Obviously um we won't discuss who the other agents were, but I wondered how you kind of made up your mind. I mean Juliet was your kind of dream, but what was it you were kind of thinking about and looking for in the kind of that when you were kind of deciding about agents? Because obviously you had that initial interest. Were you kind of thinking about the kind of writer you wanted to be long term what was kind of going through your mind at the time?
2: Yeah definitely I had considered looking for agents who would be interested in representing not just the this novel but potentially other genres that I would potentially be interested in in writing in longer term and I, I think switching genres is very difficult and but I, I do see writers doing it more frequently, I, and I feel like it's really nice not to feel like you're pigeonholed writing a certain type of story for the entirety of your career. Um, I mean, we don't all read one genre exclusively, so why, why would we write in one genre exclusively? Mm. Um, so that, that was really important to me. Um, but I think you know, it, was, it was tough because the other agents, as I said, were absolutely lovely. Um, I definitely was looking for someone I had a rapport with. Um, uh, so someone I just felt like I could get along with. I think that's really important because you need, I think, open communication um, in an agent-writer, agent-author um, relationship. So that was really important to me. But I think the other thing that really um, appealed to me about Juliet actually is she is she's just very... I think it's my corporate hat. Like I've, I've worked in the in the corporate industry for so long. I think she just came across as such a businesswoman as well. Um, and she is like, she obviously owns and, and runs her own agency and um is very successful doing that. So I think that kind of was both intimidating, but also it's like, actually, that really appeals to me. I th- she just mm. really feels like someone who gets shit done.
1: Yeah. <laughs> and that is exactly what you want. like you say when it comes to the business side of things you know um unless we're I was gonna say we're artists but that always sounds a bit wanky when I say something like that but it is true we're we're, we'll stick to the art side and um that's what agents are for that's what you know agents are there to do the the deals and the the money and everything else um how much work did you do with Juliet in terms of kind of um editorial work before you sent the book out on submission
2: yeah, so we did. I did another two drafts with Juliet, um, but they weren't huge. It, it wasn't huge, sort of structural type stuff. It was, it, we definitely made it tighter. There were certain scenes and characters that need to shift and change and, and be removed. So we did two further drafts. Um, so I signed with her in the November, and then we went out on submission in
1: April the following year, 2021. And was it quick? Was it painful? How how was it for you?
2: It was the, the redrafting process or the submission yeah the process.
1: submission process.
2: It was terrifying. I it was funny because I obviously had you know gone down all the rabbit holes online around what the submission process would be like, what to expect, and I said to Julia, how long how how long do you think it will take? Um, expecting to say, look, you know six months, whatever, I, I no, no anticipation, she's like, we all have an answer by four, the end of four weeks, and I was like, what? <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean, it, it was two weeks, I think, between submission and, and having the book deal, so it was much speedier than than I anticipated, and thank God, because it was terrifying, and um and i you know a lot of that is is due to julia and i think people just pick up what she sends out so i'm very very fortunate to have have her
1: yeah absolutely so we talk quite a lot about the kind of ups and downs of of being published and being a debut and i wondered is there anything that you kind of wish you'd known before or wish you'd known kind of almost the day you signed your book deal um that you kind of wish you could go back in time and say to yourself like it's going to be all right or what what advice would you have given to yourself and what advice can you give to uh 2024's debuts that are just about to uh, go out into the world
2: I I think probably the uh, a couple of things so one if you feel uncomfortable at anything about anything speak to your agent your agent is your biggest champion have the conversation with them if they will tell you if something is normal or if it's not or actually they're not they think you know something needs to be addressed and um they'll be able to ex- explain things that i mean i think we spend a lot of time you know there'll be you know there's usually sort of like an 18 month if you're lucky uh, but two year um lag between the time you sign your book deal and your debut novel going out and in that two years your publisher's got a lot of other stuff going on so there'll be times of silence when you just don't know what's going on and it's absolutely okay to ask the question, what is going on? Do you need anything from me? Do you have everything in hand? Um, and your agent will 100%, um, you know, fight that battle for you if the battle needs to be fought, I think. Um, and be able to clarify a lot for you as well. So make sure that you've got that that communication with your agent and with your publisher. Um, and then I think probably the other thing is it's very difficult, but ultimately there's a lot of this is out of our control. Like particularly when you've got the book deal, like you can definitely look into what you can do in terms of self promotion and, and and marketing and all that sort of stuff. But ultimately, I mean, you said it before, Chloe. We're, we're the we're the artists. We are the writers, and and our speciality here is is really it's the writing. What we want to be doing is the writing. So I I think ask the questions of of the you know industry professionals, the agents and and the publishers and focus on the next thing. I think Mm -hmm. the the best thing that we can do to help our careers is to keep writing. So, you know, for me, okay, the book is out there, it's doing what it's doing. This process happened. um, But, you know, I, all I can do really to make sure that I have longevity in my writing career is to keep writing so just focus focusing on churning out churning out the next say churning out right now (laughs) a lot of churning so (laughs) um doing what you can to enhance your writing career so if that's reading if that's research and obviously the writing um as much as you can I think try and focus on that
1: Mm -hmm, absolutely easiest easiest than done I think we would all agree but 100% the only thing we can do is write really at the end of the day um, and hopefully write better books as we keep going um so on that note finally I'd love if you could give us a little teaser about what you're working on next
2: yeah absolutely um so I am working on uh, my second novel which is a um contemporary fiction um again Family secrets, family relationships, but this one, what I'm exploring is the um, perception of mental illness in South Asian society, particularly, you know, sort of framed by one um, South Indian family. Uh, Again, it's it's a dual timeline novel set within um, sort of 1970s India and 2020s uh, London. Um, and explores the relationship between uh, a young woman and her father and um, explores sort of um, intergenerational mental illness and, and how that sort of transcends family and society. So, mm.
1: that sounds great, really good. Um, and how is book two going? Is it, are you finding it uh, difficult kind of trying to get into a new set of characters, or have you found that quite refreshing to step into new shoes?
2: it's a bit of both I think I really enjoyed stepping into into new shoes um it is really difficult though it is it is difficult and I think a lot of people will will say that book two is is hard it you almost like come to it and you're like how did I write the first one (laughs) Um, but I am enjoying it It, it's very challenging but I am enjoying it I very much feel like it is like piecing together a very very hard thousand piece puzzle (laughs) you know it's it's quite interesting and it again it's letting me sort of delve into areas that i find really interesting and um exploring sort of the history of of the region and you know different perceptions of different things that i just like very much opening my mind to be able to do this so i keep telling myself that during the difficult days when i'm like this scene is just not working what am i trying to say here what am i doing um but ultimately it's hard work but i am enjoying it
1: Mm -hmm. well I absolutely cannot wait to uh, see what it is and, and read it. And I really look forward to it. Uh, Rajashree, thank you so much for joining me on the podcast today. Thank you so much, Chloe, for having me. I really appreciate it. I really enjoyed it. That was Rajashree Varia talking about her contemporary novel, The Daughters of Madurai, which is out now and available to buy. And if you'd like to support this podcast, debut authors and independent bookshops, You can now shop in the Confessions of a Debut Novelist bookshop, hosted by bookshop.org, which I've linked down below in the show notes. If you fancy buying any of the books you've heard on this podcast, then the majority of them can be found in this bookshop, and if you can, I would really appreciate you supporting me, supporting the authors and independent bookshops by buying them through this online store. Thank you so much for listening, and if you've enjoyed this episode, please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts or if you've subscribed already, it'd be great if you could leave me a review. See you next time.